your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're bearing down on the end of this study by faith. (laughs) We're bearing down on the end of this study. As I shared with you a number of times before, around the beginning of the year, I really felt the Lord open my eyes to these first 16 verses in Ephesians 4 and speak to me that that is for this body, for this period of time, for this year. And that doesn't mean that it's going to end by the December 31st. But, but this is a focus to, that we are to have. Because it talks about who we are. And it's time that we awaken to realize who we are. And, and, and not only who we are individually, but who we are collectively. We were saved in the late 70s, in the end of the charismatic revival. And, and then we went into the 80s where it should, the explosion of the Word. The Word was everything and the Word is critical. This is a church that teaches the Word. I am a pastor that teaches the Word of God. I attempt as best I know how to live my life based on this Word. It doesn't mean I'm perfect at it, just as you aren't either. But we are a Word-based church. And the Word focused for the 80s and the 90s was so much on what God has done for us, who we are in Christ individually. But I believe we're moving into a time where the Spirit of God is calling us to become aware of not just who we are individually, but who we are collectively. And the first, first nine, eight, seven verses of this chapter, which we're not going to go back over, talk about that awareness that there is one body, there is one God, there is one Lord. talks about, and we spent time in the beginning of this year again, Speaking about this, he emphasizes that, that, that we are to preserve or maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I remember talking to you about the word maintain tells us there's something we've been given and we're responsible, responsible to keep it together. It's not something we go get. It's something that's already been given to us and we're responsible not to lose it. And it's interesting because I was reading some article over this last week. I don't know it was on a plane or somewhere. I've read so many things lately that talked about that same thing out of this same verse. The, the unity of the Spirit is something we've been given, but we have to maintain it. And in order to maintain it, we have to be aware of it. So it talks in these first seven verses about who we are collectively, that we are the body of Christ. And I shared with you that one of the things that the Spirit of God needs to do with us and help us to do is to do a shift in how we see each other as a church. And this is why a trip like this is so helpful also, it is that it helps you to realize that we're not just a series of individuals that happen to belong to Faith Christian Center together. That we're not a bunch of Christians that come together on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night or whatever other times we may come here. That That's what we have in common is we belong to the same church. That's not how the Bible sees you at all. The Bible literally tells us that we are part of His body. And so what's happening this morning here at this location is a portion of His body has gathered together to worship Him. A portion of His body has come together in order to hear Him speak to us. A portion of His body has come together so that we might minister to Him to Him through ministering to one another. So when you walked in the door this morning and somebody greeted you or you may have said hello to somebody and you may have gotten into a conversation with somebody, you have no idea how the Spirit of God may have used you to minister to another part of the body that we're all part of. And we need to work on that and meditate on these scriptures because if you change how you see yourself, it will change how you operate towards one another. And that is where I believe God's calling us. 
So we're going to pick up now in, in verse 8, I think it's verse 8, and we're going to talk about your part of that. We're going to begin to move down into the next verse in this study. So he's talked through verse 1 through 6 about, about the unity, what it is we have in common, that we're all part of one body, we have one God, one Father, we have one Lord Jesus Christ, and there's one Spirit that dwells in us. There's not a different spirit that walked in here today. There is one spirit of God and He lives in all of us. That's why He's called the spirit of unity because He's not only a spirit who brings unity, He is the spirit that unifies us because the same spirit that dwells in me dwells in you. That's why we, we go to, went to Mexico and we met men and women that we've never met before. There's an immediate sense of identity with them. Even though we don't speak the same language, even though we look differently on the outside, we live in different physical houses, our bodies. But there's an identity we have. Why? Because the same spirit that lives in them lives in me. That's why I don't speak that language, speak just a little bit of it, but not enough to preach in it. That's why I could speak to them through an interpreter, and we could end up... At the, in fact, the wonderful thing was to watch Anita work, talk and develop a relationship with these pastor's wives. She doesn't speak one word of Spanish, and they don't speak one word of English. But there's a, there's a connection there because there's a unity of the Spirit. The same Spirit that lives in her lives in them. And even though they couldn't talk physically and communicate information, they could, there was a communication of love. There was a communication of the Spirit of the living God. There was a sense of belonging to one another. And so that's the spirit of unity that dwells in you and dwells in me. And that's what God has done that. That's, we're joined together as well as joined to Him. And we spend time talking about the fact that we're part of His body and that you cannot be, separate, you cannot be joined to Him and separated from one another. Because to be separated from one another is to be separated from Him because He is in all of us. And so that's what he's been talking about for the first six verses. But now he's going to talk about, although it's one body, he's going to begin to focus in on you and me personally. Verse 7. But so, to, so, although he's talking about to one body, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what does that mean? Well, I know we're all saved by grace, so we're going to look at that this morning. But the word grace means so much more than God's unmerited favor. If you have an Amplified Bible or have what you're looking at this morning, what you'll find is that Amplified Bible will say for the word grace, God's unmerited favor. And at the very surface, that is what it means. But the word grace in Greek, which is the most powerful word in the Bible, is the word charis. And that word means that God has given something to us that we do not deserve. It is the disposition, the attitude of God's heart towards you. It is an attitude that says, instead of giving you what you've earned and deserved, I'm going to give to you out of the abundant love of my heart what I want you to have. We do that with our children to a much smaller degree. We've just had a, a new granddaughter born to us about six, seven weeks ago. And, and, and our heart is to pour out blessings on that little girl, and she can't do anything for us. She can't do anything back except smile at us. And that's worth everything. We get text messages from our daughter sending us pictures of her, you know, and, and with smiles on her face. And it just warms us on the inside even though it's thousands of miles away. Why? Why? Because of what she means to us. That smile from her. And just imagine what you can do back for God. So He's God. He doesn't need anything. Oh, yes, He does. He wants your love. 
But that Father's heart has poured out on you out of the abundant love of His heart for you everything that you need. And that's what that word grace means. We could spend weeks talking about what that... I did a study on that word a number of years ago. It is such a powerful word. It's not a weak word at all. It means God's let you get by with something and not punished you. But I think that's how many Christians see it. They read it as, well, God's letting me get by. He didn't let you get by with anything. Because if God let you get by with something, He would no longer be just and righteous. In Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about, excuse me, Romans chapter 3, it talks about Him being the just and the justifier. That's an important combination because He's, in order to justify you, to make you right in His eyes, He could have done it two ways. He could have just said, look, I'm going to look the other way and pretend they never sinned. But then He'd no longer be just. He'd be denying what is the truth. Sometimes as parents, we're tempted to do that. We lay some rule down for our children. If you don't do this, or if you don't clean your room, or if you talk back, this is what's going to happen to you. And so they challenge you and they talk back. And I know, I've been a parent. I've got four children. You know, you, just, you don't want to punish them. You don't want to, you don't want to do what you said you were going to do. So the temptation is to kind of look the other way. Pretend you didn't see it. Because if I didn't see it, I don't have to deal with it. But I did see it. So I'm no longer just, I'm no longer righteous because I'm compromising what I know is the truth and what's right. So if God did that, He'd no longer be God. That means we could no longer trust Him. So what God did is to, be, to, to justify you, to make you right in His sight, and yet to stay righteous Himself, somebody had to pay for your sin and my sin. And so He stepped down out of heaven. And He walked among us. And at the appointed time... He allowed them to nail Him to that cross. And on that cross, He took your sin and my sin so that He could justify you and make you right in His eyes. That's how much He wanted you. That's how much He still wants you today and loves you. That's that heart of grace. And out of that heart of grace, He has bestowed gifts. And the word grace here is talking about gifts that God has given to you that you did not deserve, you didn't even ask for, you don't even merit, but He has just chosen to give them to you. And so this verse says that He gave gifts, or charis, to men. He gave gifts, God gave gifts. To each one of us, grace was given, and that grace includes a bestowal upon you of gifts to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he said in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's a quote out of Psalm 68. So he's talking about giving gifts to us. And then in this, the next verse or so is in parenthesis. Now, this, what does this mean that he ascended? Does not only mean he first descended, talking about Christ, to the lower parts of the earth. He descended as the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he himself gave some, some what? Some of these gifts he gave in the form of apostles, some in the form of prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And we talked about that. These five gifts that are lifted here, listed here were given to the church. And those are very often the gifts such as I am a pastor. That's a gift that God deposited in me and I'm a teacher. That's a gift that God deposited in me. I didn't earn it. I didn't, I didn't go to school to study it. I've done things to enhance it and improve it. He just chose to deposit that in me. And, and, and so that's a gift that's given. 
Some he's given the gift of an apostle. Some as a prophet. And these are gifts to the church. And the next verse says why they're given for the equipping of the saints. And we've talked about that word equipping and what that means. It talks about who the saints are. That's all of us. So these gifts are given to the saints, to all believers, so so that they may equip us so that we can do the work, we talked about that four-letter word, work of the ministry. Now, while we went down to Mexico, there was a gentleman that joined us because he'd met these missionaries back here in the States, and he believes God has called him to Mexico, so they invited him down and, you know, he, he, so that he could discover that ministry is more than preaching and teaching. And the expression they just kept using for him is ministry is W-O-R-K. There was preparing food, there was cleaning things up, there was organizing things, there was arranging things, there were all kinds of work went into that short period of time when someone stood in front of those pastors and spoke to them. And so ministry is work, and we talked about that, the equipping of the saints of all of us to do the work of the ministry. We talked about the word ministry, and it means service. It's a table waiter. You take something somebody else purchased and paid for and prepared, and that's the gospel. And we bring it and minister it to people. We serve it to people that have needs. And that's what a table waiter is. That's what a minister is. That's what the word ministry is. I want you, every time you read the word ministry in the Bible, every time you hear somebody say the word ministry, translate that in your mind to mean service, table waiter, because that's what it is. And so we've talked about all those things. But, so, but what I want you to see here is those gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, he lists here, he says, some of those gifts were given in this form. That means there are many other gifts that were given to us that are not included in that list of five. We've mentioned them before, but that's where I want to begin to focus because He has put at least one of those gifts in every one of you. Because He says in verse 7, if you're part of the body, He's given gifts to you. And we're going to talk about that gift that God's given to you and the responsibility that goes with that gift, because there is a gift and there is a responsibility. And that's what we're going to begin to look at. All right, so we're looking at the gifts that God has given to us in verse, Ephesians 4, verse 7, which He says is grace. This grace, this gift that was given to you, some of these gifts we've just seen in verse 11, He gave as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But now we're going to look at the other gifts. Verse, go down to verse 13. These gifts are given until we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we've talked about this before. That we're no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind or doctor. We just finished a number of weeks looking at that verse and all that that means for us. Go down to verse 15. And here's how we change and grow. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head. Now stop a second. I want every one of you this morning that's sitting here that has a head on your body to reach up and touch it. I'm looking, because if you don't reach up and touch it, I'm going to think you left your head at home. All right. Okay. Now you know where your head is. It's on the shoulders, right, supposedly. I'm not talking about what's in it. (laughs) I'm just saying you've got one. All right, you've got one. It's located on the top of your shoulders, okay? Now, notice what he says here about the head. 
that all of the rest of the body is focused on this head. But just because you've got a head, that's not your whole body, right? Because your head's not sitting in that chair. Your head did not bring you here today, did it? Your head may have had a great deal to do with how you got here, how safely you got here, and all the details about getting you here. But your head may have planned how you got here. Your head may have been overseeing the process of getting here. But your head, this is a deep revelation, so I'll make sure you... Your head did not get you here. Did it? That means your head by itself is not enough. As important as your head is, you can't go anywhere or do anything without your head. Because without your head, you're dead. Amen. Right? Amen. Is this too heavy for you? I know it's early in the morning, but I'm just, you know, we're digging in deep here. But there's a purpose to doing this. There's a profound truth in this that Paul is getting across to us here. Because everything comes out of the head. But the head is not everything in your body. So without your head, you're dead. We got that? Or do I have to go back over that again? All right. But the other side of this is without your body, your head is dead. This is a little heavier, right? Because if your head's separated from you, this is going to really get deep now. If your head is separated from your body, that automatically means your body is separated from your head. Some of you are having trouble with this. Is it, is it that early in the morning? There's no trick here. I'll do this to this side. I think this side's starting to get it. If your head is separated from your body, you're with me, that automatically means your body's separated from your head. I've got to do this again over here. We don't think in these terms. This seems, see, the reason you're struggling with this is it's so simple and basic, but it's so profound. Profound things are simple and basic. They're often so simple, we just pass right by them. Amen. There is in this verse, because I wasn't, this, I mean, this isn't where I was going to emphasize today. There is in this verse one of the most important things you need to understand as a Christian. I'm going to read the verse to you. We're talking now in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love we may grow up into, into Him who is the head. So we understand that Christ is the head. Verse 16 says, From whom? From who? From Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body. So he's talking about a whole body here, and he's saying Christ is the head. Well, if He's the head, then who's the body? We are. So the point here is, the head, the body can do nothing without the head, but on the other hand, the head can do nothing 
without the body. You understand this. Now, don't pick up rocks to throw me at, throw them at me because I can give you Scripture to support it. Jesus is not here right now. <gasps> the Bible says He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, Jesus said He'd never leave me or forsake me. He hasn't. He's put His Spirit in you. That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of John, it's to your advantage that I leave. Physically, I'm going to leave you. But when I leave, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send... Notice He was confident His prayers are answered. He is going to send the Holy Spirit who has been with you because He's been in me. But now He will be in you. And so the head is seated at the right hand of the Father, and just as your physical head gave you directions on how to get here and everything you had to do to get here today, and then he over, your head oversaw the process, your head did not get you here. You had to use your feet. You had to use your hands. You had to use, in fact, you used every other part of you in order to get here. That means every part of you was essential to the task of getting you to church. And in the same way, every part of His body is essential, essential to carrying out the will of the head of His body. He oversees the process. He oversees the work of the church. But He is not the church. He's the head of it. We are the church. We are His body. That means He can't get somewhere unless we take Him. He can't do something unless we do it. He can't speak unless we open our mouth. He can't touch someone unless we reach out because we are His body. That means He cannot accomplish His will without you. So who am I? I'm not all that important. Well, let's just take your little finger today, which isn't all that important, and let's just cut it off. Not important, is it? You wouldn't do that, would you? For two reasons. First of all, you do need it. You need to hold your little pinky up when you drink your coffee. (laughs) You need it to balance your hand when you write. But not only that, even if you can't think of anything really important that it does... If we were to take a, 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 a knife and cut it off, it would hurt, right? Yes. It hurts when part of your body's cut off. It hurts Him when part of His body is cut off and separated from the rest of the body. Jesus says so much about how we are to get along with one another. And the Bible says so much about how the devil's main goal is to separate us from one another. So Jesus' Jesus's heart is that we be joined together. Satan's plan is to separate us and create division. That ought to simplify things right there. So he is the head and we are the body. And you are individually, we'll look at that in a few minutes, members of that body. Verse 16, From whom? That's the head. The whole body joined and knit together by what every 
joint supplies from whom the whole body joined and knit together. So the whole body is made up of parts that are joined and knit together by which every joint supplies. Now what is a joint? Some of your minds went back into your past when I said that. (laughs) Come on back over into the Bible. You've been redeemed from that past. In your body, what are your joints? Your wrist, your knuckles, your elbow, your shoulder, your knees, your waist. All all these are joints. And what do the joints do? They connect together different parts of your body so that they can function and move together to accomplish the will that your head has decided needs to be done. I was reading and doing some studying yesterday of some people that have written about these subjects and I don't remember who it was, but some great theologian years ago who, who set out to prove the theory of evolution went into a biology, I don't know how he did it, but he studied what a hand looks like, the structure of a hand, a separate hand, and all the different moving parts. And just by looking in that, he realized there had to be a God. You don't realize when you reach out for something, all the little parts that are moving together to do that. Everything in your body that has to take place just for you to reach for that cup of coffee and and pick it up. And you don't think about how those different parts work together. You just, your mind says, grab for that cup. And when you reach out, you grab for that cup. But all these little parts start functioning together in unison for one purpose. And they can only do that because they are joined together by a joint. I was trying to think yesterday how I could find one of these. Somebody may have one of these. But, and this will really date me. So you're past a certain age, you won't understand what I'm talking about. But we were growing up, they had this, we didn't have, you know, video games and texting and things like that. Uh, but we had a, this little character who sat on a, on a, on a wooden thing that had a, pl- a, a spring and a plunger that went up from the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? And his character was made up of little pieces of, of wood, not even plastic, that had a string through it that was an elastic string. And his head was tied through this string to his arms. Some of you remember what I'm talking about? And his legs. And he stood like this. But if you pushed up on the bottom, you relieved the tension and all the pieces fell apart like that. The pieces were there. But when you pushed up on the spring, when you put pressure on it, the pieces all separated. And he just he collapsed and fell down. And I suspect that that's how the Lord sees the body of Christ today. Pieces are there. They're loosely arranged with each other. They come to church together. But they're not joined together so that they can function. See, God has made us 
to be in relationship with each other. We're going to talk more about that at the beginning of the year. God has made us to be... Oh, I'm just... God has made us to be in relationship with each other. And if God made us that way, we have no alternative. Oh, sure, we can refuse it and deny it, but you're fighting against the will of God. You cannot be by yourself. You cannot isolate yourself. In fact, I think it's Proverbs 18.1 says that if you isolate yourself, that means you're selfish. That means, well, I don't need anybody else. Yeah, but they may need you. And in reality, you do need other people. How do I know that? Because God made you to need other people, just like the parts of your body need each other. Because what we're going to begin to see is there are gifts that other people have that you need. And there are gifts that other people need that you have. And in any event, there are gifts that God has given you that He needs because it's His body that you're part of. And so that figure reminds me of that. So he's saying that, that, that the body is held together and can function because certain parts of this body are joints that connect the other parts together. And we're going to see that every part of, that bo- of your body and His body have a function, and there are different functions. from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So every joint in his body has to be supplying what it's supposed to supply in order for his body to function correctly. And you are part of that body. You may be a joint. A joint is some function that connects people together. If so, if you're not in place or if you're stiff and you're not operating because you haven't been used lately, then it can be hard for you to be used. A number of years ago, I was playing basketball. It was Father's Day. A number of years ago, I was playing basketball with my sons out in the street. I was old enough to have known better, but I didn't. I'm trying to compete with my kids. And in going up after a rebound, I came down and my sneakers hit gravel. And I came down on my elbow and cracked my elbow. And there was a service here that night. I came here, I wrapped it up, and then I went to see the doctor the next day, and he, he wrapped it all up and put it in a sling. And he said, now what you need to do is you need to regularly, every day, start stretching that out. I said, why? It hurts to stretch it out. He says, because if you don't, what's going to happen is it's going to freeze on you. And this was in the summertime. He said, I don't mean freeze in the sense of get frozen like ice. Freeze in the sense that you won't be able to move it. I said, well, you think it's just the opposite because I'm resting it. He said, if you don't use it, you lose it. If you don't exercise that joint, what will happen is you will lose the ability to exercise that joint. And sometimes when you go through physical therapy... Maybe you've had surgery, knee surgery, or you've had uh, surgery on your elbow, and, and they, they're telling you to do the opposite of what it feels like it makes sense. It doesn't feel like it makes sense. It feels like you're killing it to exercise that, to begin to stretch that leg out. Some of you here have had knee surgery or, 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 or elbow surgery. But you've got to do it. They're telling you you need to exercise it and use it so that it maintains its function. That principle is not only true in the natural physical body, it's also true spiritually. That if you don't maintain your connection and your your movement with people, then what happens is it becomes easier to do what's comfortable, which is to not do anything. 
and your ability to connect with people, your ability to be a joint that helps other people move and creates leverage, that ability will begin to be lost. See, the reason I can lift things with, your el- with, with my elbow is, is because of a principle called leverage. Leverage is what allows you to use to lift more than you normally can. I'm sure you've all seen these things, maybe from school you remember, where you had a big stone and they, you, you tried to move this stone. You put a little stone in front of it called the fulcrum and then you take this big stick and you stick it underneath the rock on that fulcrum and then the longer that rod is, you never know what you're going to learn here, the longer that rod is, the more leverage you have. And as you lean on this, with your minimum strength, you can now move this because this lever is working on your behalf. But that's not just true with a rock and the little rock and the stick. That's true of your arm. Your arm is a lever that allows your hand and these muscles to lift more than they could lift if you were just lifting it like this. Have you ever done arm wrestling? I've got a grandson that loves to arm wrestle with me. And so the interesting thing is, even if I were not as strong, stronger than he is, I'm going to win. Why? Because my forearm is longer than his. So I've got greater leverage than he does. And so, uh, uh, so it's, it would be easier, even if he were physically had more muscle, I've got more leverage. So you're, you're providing, by being joined to the right part, you are providing the body of Christ to have leverage and do things beyond what it normally could do because of your connection to who you're supposed to be connected with. So the point he's making here is that every joint in his body must be in place in order for every part to be connected together because the joints are what connect us. All right, let's move on. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every, every, every joint supplies according to the effective working there's that word work again, by which every part does its share. You are one of those parts. You are one of those parts. You, personally, sitting in that blue chair, are one of those parts. And the body will not work effectively unless you do, of his body, your share. It's been assigned to you. That means that Now, the reason it's so important to understand what we've talked about before, that the ministry is service and the saints are all of us, is that because under the model that was taught for so many years... Saints are special Christians that have done special work that end up with being honored by being, having their pictures in stained glass windows and by being called Saint so-and-so. And the ministry has been considered a profession. And so it is to be honored, but it's not a profession, it's a calling. I was in a profession before I was a lawyer. I chose to do that. I didn't choose to be a pastor I was called by God to do that. Very different. But if your concept of ministry is it's a profession, then what we do is we sit out here as spectators and we pay the professional to do the work of the ministry. So we come on Sunday to see whether he's doing a good job or not. After all, that's why we pay him, 
so he can do the work of the ministry. And that's why so many pastors have burned out, because that was their model also. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that that position is called to train all of us so that we can go do the work of the ministry. And what I want you to see before we're done with the study is that your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your joy, and everything in life depends on whether you fulfill what God called you to do. You can have the greatest company in the world, the greatest job in the world. You can have the greatest uh, 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 family in the world. You can have all the things this world has to offer. You can have the best of all of them, but you will not be content unless you're doing what God calls you to do because that's what you were made to do. But we're looking in these verses to see that Paul is telling these Ephesians that every one of you has to be doing your function effectively in order for the body to be functioning effectively. And now what does the body do when we do that? It causes the building up of the, the growth of the body for the edifying or building of itself up in love. You personally are a critical part of whether the body of Christ matures and grows up to the place where God's called it to be. You say, well, I'm not that important. Tell that to all the millions that have been saved under Billy Graham's ministry. Because you understand that Billy Graham would not have been all around the world and preached the gospel. And it's the last I heard, and this was 10, 15 years ago, something like 70 million people were saved under his ministry so far. But how did he get saved? At his own meetings? No. He got saved in Sunday school by a Sunday school teacher. Now, was she important? I don't even remember her name. Was she important? Because unless she had taken her place, he wouldn't have been saved. If he hadn't been saved, 70 million people. Now, somebody else might have reached some of them. So don't sit there and tell me, well, I'm not anybody. Then you're telling God he's wrong. Because God's saying to you, you are important. The reason we struggle with it is we look at ourselves and say, well, who am I? And God's not looking at who you are. He's looking at the grace He's giving you. And all He's telling you is to use what He gave you. He's not asking you to do something you can't do. He's not calling you to do something far above what you... What you because He's already given you the grace. He's just telling you, use the grace that I've given to you. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Oh, this is one of my favorites. There's so much we could do in here. But I want you to come away from here today with maybe a little different picture of yourself and how God sees you. Psalm 139. Now, when you've done that, put something there because I, I skipped the verse. Go back to Ephesians. Get your exercise today. Ephesians chapter 2. Let 
Well, let's start in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I used to have this picture. This isn't my point. But I used to have this picture that from that verse that we're seated in heavenly places. Now, I know your body's sitting here. But spiritually, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. I had this image that you have the throne of the Father here. Next to that, you have the throne of the Son. And then maybe there's Paul and Peter, James and John, Andrew, and way over there is this John. Maybe 4,375,275,000. And I'm looking at the throne... Glad to be here. Oh, am I glad to be here. Take my place at the right hand of the Father. And then it dawned on me one day what it's saying. I'm sitting right next to Him. Why? Because when I came to Christ, I was joined to Christ. That means wherever He is, I am. So if He's seated at the right hand of the Father, I'm in Him seated at the right hand of the Father. You're seated in heavenly places right next to the Father because you're not somebody way over there. You're in Christ. See, it's not a club that when you come to Christ, I think we think it is. That when we come to Christ, we get a membership card. Jerome, this is your membership card in the body of Christ. You've got your ID on it. Your membership number. Actually, we need six cards because to put your membership number on. It's that long because we've had a lot come before you. No, 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 no. See, when God looks at your membership, He sees Christ. You don't need a... See, you didn't join a club. You didn't join an organization. You didn't join a church. Now, we have membership here, but it's not to get you into the body of Christ. You were joined to Christ. Because if you're not joined to Christ... You're not His. Romans chapter 8 says that. All right. Let's move on. We're in, Romans, we're in Ephesians 2. That in the, verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. These are the famous verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace is God's disposition towards you by which He's given to you your salvation. It's received through faith. And that not of yourself, that's the faith that it took to receive it, is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. You get this settled in your mind. Everything you have, I'm going to show you a verse later on. Everything you have is a gift from God. That means you can't take credit for any of it. It's all a gift from God. Our salvation, verse 9, not of works, our works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. He is a master craftsman, and you are His workman. You are the product 
of His skill as a creator. There's no such thing as a self-made man. That's an illusion. All of us came out of a mother's womb. You are His workmanship. The product of His grace given as a gift to you received by faith that He also had to give you because you didn't have the faith to receive it. And that's how we're saved. We are His workmanship, but notice the rest of that verse. Created in Christ, that means in His body, as part of His body, for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you were saved by His grace. At that point, grace was given to you. In that grace that was given to you was not only His love and mercy that saved you, but also the giftings that God had so that when you became part of His body, you would be equipped to perform the function that was called and ordained for you to perform before the foundation of the earth. You are His workmanship. Now, does he know what he's doing? Is he experienced at this? How many people has he created? (laughs) He knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. And he's a master craftsman. Science is still marveling at this creation that he made, this body, this human body. This is the finest computer still still on the face of this earth. Don't have to plug it in at the end of the day. They're still studying how all these things work and discovering something He created before the foundation of the earth. And you are His master creation of a master artist a master creator. You are His workmanship. But He didn't create you to put you on a shelf and admire this great creation. You were created unto or for the performance of good works. Does that mean good works that God will love me? No. That means you have a purpose for your life that God has ordained for you. Before the foundation of the world. Now, Psalm 139. Verse 13. I mean, we could start at the beginning of this. is so powerful. This is David talking to God. Verse 13. But you formed my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. That word covered actually means knit, K-N-I-T. 
when I was a young boy, my, my, my parents went through a divorce and I went with my mother. And I, I, I was meditating on this this morning and this picture came back of sitting watching her knit. And when she would knit, I had no clue what she was making because she'd start with just a few stitches. But everything was done by her hands. In fact, she didn't have to watch what she was doing. She was doing all this stuff, you know, and knit one, pearl two, and all that, whatever it was, you know. And gradually as she kept knitting, you began to, this thing she was putting together, she was taking the raw yarn and connecting it together, interweaving it together with these knitting needles. And as she was begin to knit more and more and more, I guess it's an art that people, we just, people don't do it anymore. But gradually what became is she was rearranging this, this, this yarn and it was beginning to take form. But it started with just a few stitches or what, I don't know what you call it with knitting. But she was doing together and these master, these experienced hands of hers were, were doing all this stuff and gradually she was com- interweaving this yarn together to form something that became either a sweater or a blanket or, or whatever it was she was making. That's what that word means here. God... While you were, his first cells were joined in your mother's womb, he watched over that process. And he ordained before the beginning of time what you would look like and what you would be like. Science is now discovering. In these last 10 years, they've discovered the genome. They've discovered the, the, the key to the DNA. Every cell in, in your body and those first, that first cell has in it instruction code that they now can read an instruction code for what every cell is to become and where it's assigned to I mean if there's anything science has discovered that ought to confirm that there's a God it's that there is a master code for what you look like well not today because you've had something to do with that we won't go there There's a master code in those first cells and in every cell that determines what it's going to be made like and where, listen to me carefully, where it's assigned to in your body. And God watched over that process in you. That's what these words mean. While you were being formed in your mother's womb, he had in mind before the foundation of the earth what part of his body you would be. And he oversaw this process so that you would be equipped to be that part and to function in that part. Verse 14. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. For my frame, literally my bones, were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now that's a little troublesome. So I did some study on that. And what that's referring to is the fact that you were formed and you couldn't be seen. And actually, if you go back into Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. He's talking about your body. So the whole point here 
is God watched over the process of your body being formed in your mother's womb because he had assigned ahead of time what your purpose was going to be and what place you were ordained before the foundation of the world to take in his body. In some of my studies yesterday, I I came across a story, and I don't remember where it came from. I know where I found it, but I don't remember the source of it. So I'm not telling you this is a true story or not, but the point is, the story was about a young girl named Amy Carmichael. And all her life growing up, she, she was born with brown eyes. And, and her, her, she, was, she, she didn't like the way she looked. She, she had friends that had blue eyes and blonde hair. And she always wished she had blue eyes and blonde hair. And she felt so sorry for herself. She was upset. She was ashamed of herself because she didn't like having brown eyes. I, that's, that's her thing. She ended up being saved and being called by God to go into the Muslim world and be a witness for Christ. In that world, she had to have her head covered and she had to have a mask over her face. The only thing visible were her eyes. Imagine if she had the eyes she wanted to and took that assignment. They would be like a target because they don't have blue eyes over there. So any authority looking at her eyes would recognize that she was not a Muslim girl, but that she was most likely from Europe or from the United States. So the thing that she looked down on as being, I don't like this part of me, was very part of the equipping that God had given to her because of what He had assigned her to do. This is why the devil works so hard to make you dissatisfied with yourself. to not like yourself. Because when you're dissatisfied with yourself, my feet are too big, my ears are this, my hair, blah, 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 blah. I can't do anything. Moses stood before God and said, I can't do what you call me to do. I don't... stutter. Well, if you read the Scriptures, you'll find out that was a lie because Hebrews says he was strong in word and power. He knew how to speak. He was using that as an excuse to not do what God had called him to do. But here's the point of this. Every one of you sitting here this morning has been called by God to be part, a particular part of his body. He has gifted you with something from him in order to perform that part. And he's called you to take your place. Unless you do, you will never be satisfied with your life. I believe that so many people are depressed and discouraged on pills and taking all kinds of things. I'm not saying it's the answer to everything, but so many people are struggling in so many areas of their life simply because they've not taken the place that God has assigned for them. Because remember this, that's why He made you. He made you because He loves you and wants to be in relationship with you but He's also made you and designed you the way you are and put in you gifts that are His gifts. They're not yours. They're His gifts that He's entrusted to you because His body needs those gifts. And when you find that place that He's ordained for you, see, it's not an option. He's ordained it for you. I thought only preachers were ordained. No, ordained means God's chosen and picked. God has chosen you 
and assigned you. So I don't believe people have the right to choose where they go to church. We do. But I don't believe that's God's assigned us to churches. Why? Because it's a part of His body that gathers together. I'll end with this story. As most of you know, after I left the law practice, the first time I, I had a small church. And, and for a number of reasons, God just dealt with me. It was time you need to step out. I'd taken it on too early. I just didn't know enough. I was not mature enough in the Lord. And so when we left that church, there was a pastor that was a good friend of ours. He, you know, the people in that church knew I'd been a pastor. There was a wide open door to us. I know they would have received us with great love. And I know down in here that the Lord told me to come here, bring my family here. I don't want to come here. Not that I don't mind you people, but Pastor Sam scared me. He had a heart as big as the New England, but I hadn't seen that side of him. My father was rough and hard, and Pastor Sam appeared to me. And I don't want to—I don't want—I want to. I don't mind visiting here, but I—but I just knew in here wasn't a voice. I knew in here that we belonged here. Little did I know then how important that simple act of obedience was to our future and to this church. I never dreamed that God had planned for us and for me ultimately to be in this position. But that was part of His master plan. When I stepped into this role, I began to realize everything I'd gone through in ministry and life up to this point was to prepare me and equip me to step into this role. I know that with all my heart. God has a purpose for you. And when I stepped into this, it was like a coin going into a slot in a, in a machine. It just felt right. And I have such peace and such confidence, not in myself, but knowing this joint has been connected to the right place. There is no amount of money you can pay to give you that kind of satisfaction because you see, that's what you were made to do. And until you're doing what you were made to do, there's always going to be a frustration. There's always going to be a dissatisfaction. It may be buried way down inside and you may have it covered over with success in every kind of area. But somewhere down inside, there's not a full peace because that peace comes by taking your place that's been assigned to you. You were ordained by God before the foundation of this world to take some place and some function in His body. That's what God has determined for you. It's up to you whether you do that.